You know, I've, I have sung that hymn hundreds of times. I'm sure many of you have too. There's something about this arrangement. I'd never heard it until this morning, this arrangement. It just brings me to tears thinking about the truth in that hymn, doesn't it not? That uh, Christ in the garden was so, uh, I don't know what the word is, just the, his soul was so heavy that the angels came to minister to him for our salvation. And in, in a short time, we are going to be beholding him in glory, be able to sing praise to him forevermore. What a wonderful truth that is, isn't it? Well, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This is a passage of scripture that the truth, we will understand the truth as we go through this that's being taught, the, the situation that Paul is writing about. But the application of that, I think it's going to be quite a bit harder for us today, and you'll see why as we get into the message. But uh, 1 Corinthians 8, I've, I've heard of church members quarreling over doctrine and quarreling over whether or not to add new programs to the church, and of course, quarreling over the color of the carpet. You know, should it be red or blue or whatever other color? But I've never heard Christians quarrel over whether or not the meat that was brought to the potluck had been used in a pagan sacrifice before that. If you have, you've got something on me. Yet this matter was a serious issue to the church in Corinth. And it's a serious issue for us, too, in this respect. It causes us to ask these kind of questions. How do we as Christians interact with non-Christian religions and rituals around us? I'll give you an example. I'm not trying to derail the sermon. Um, yoga. That's a religious ritual. How do we interact with yoga? Can we go to non-Christian religious ceremonies and participate in their rituals? Can we identify in any sense with the pagan elements of the surrounding culture? Is there any identification that we can do with the pagan elements and that's okay? In other parts of the world, the question is, can we consume any of the leftovers of pagan ritual meals? That's, that's an actual question that churches around the world can ask. Is doing any such thing participating in paganism in a violation of God's pro prohibition of, of idolatry? I think this morning I said adultery, but it's idolatry, just to clarify that. Um, let me throw out another one, because it's become so Christianized, we don't even think about it. And I'm not throwing stones. You realize that Christmas started out as a pagan holiday. Yeah. It, we all celebrate Christmas. It's been transformed. I understand that. But uh, these, these are questions that have been asked. So we're headed into a section in chapters 8 to 10, um, all the way through, that's all about idolatry. This section, these three chapters are about idolatry. It may not look like it at first, but it is. You'll see as we get through these chapters in later sermons. And it requires some background information in order to interpret properly 
Because let's be honest, um, the idea of sacrificing food to idols is foreign to us. Did anybody do that this morning before they came to church? Uh, did your neighbors? No. Not unless they had a barbecue that went awry. Um, it's easy for us to understand why Christians should have nothing to do with idolatry. The first three commandments of the Ten Commandments have to do with that. There's extended sections in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter number 4, verses 15 to 30, all about idolatry, but it's far more difficult for us to understand how food items can be directly connected with pagan practice. And so, as we work our way through this, these next three chapters of 1 Corinthians, there's some background information that we need to understand First of all, realize that they didn't have any kind of refrigeration. And so when, when, somebody sacri- or when, some, when somebody butchered an animal, it had to be eaten rather quickly because the meat would spoil very quickly in that culture. But secondly, we need to understand that the people in that culture, um, they ate meals in pagan temples. The temples, they had meals. Uh, We have potlucks. They have meals. Um, And the trade guilds. For example, if you were a silversmith, you were a blacksmith, some kind of carpenter, they had guilds. And you, when you went into that guild hall, there would be a pagan deity that that guild was made not in memory of, but, you know, made for. And so they would sacrifice to that pagan deity and then eat their meal. If you're a Christian um, and you're a silversmith, if you're going to be a member of the guild and have any kind of living whatsoever, you had to figure out what you're going to do in that situation, right? By the way, those pagan guilds, are the pre-runners of the modern-day restaurant. Uh, I'm not sure what idol we sacrifice to when we go into restaurants, but uh, anyway. When people gathered together for such a meal, it was usual practice to begin with a sacrifice to the deity in which the temple or the guild were dedicated. Um, Then the diners would consume what was left of the sacrificial animal, or the other foodstuffs, if it was fruit, vegetables, whatever, um, given to the gods. Part of the butchered animal was burned as a sacrifice. The rest was given to the priests. And that was placed upon the altar. The altar, another name for it, is the table of the gods. Okay? And then... It was eaten by the priests and participants of the festivity. If there's anything left over, most of the time it was given or sold to the butchers in the meat market and then they would distribute it from there. Okay? So if you lived in the upper levels of Corinthian society, you would have a difficult time avoiding such meals since virtually all social activities and commerce took place that way. And how do you avoid that? If every meal out, they didn't have restaurants, every meal out was either in a temple or in a guild, how do you avoid that? Therefore, the connection between the contents of the meal 
and the particular pagan deity to whom the meal was dedicated, the question would arise this, and this is a very important question, ready? Can Christians participate in such activities? That was the question. It was the connection between the meal, the sacrifice, and the pagan deities associated with them that created the ethical problems for these Christians throughout the empire, the Greco-Roman society. And you can imagine, how does a Christian justify eating in a pagan temple? Or how does a Christian justify eating something that's been offered in a pagan sacrifice? Now, apparently in Corinth, a lot of the Corinthians had no problem whatsoever, okay, because of the way the arguments are framed. They didn't have any problem with it whatsoever. But there's also a related problem. What do you do if you're a poor Christian in Corinth? Because for a poor Christian, being able to afford meat at all was, was an amazing thing. And the, the easiest place to get meat, if you're a poor person, is in the surrounding vicinities where that meat had been offered to an idol. And if it's a matter of, we're going to eat meat this week, but it's got to be offered to an idol, or we don't eat meat this week, what do you do? You see the questions that come up? What if you're, what if you're a super wealthy Corinthian, and you say you shouldn't eat that meat, and you start judging the poorer Corinthian Christian, who their only source of meat that they can afford is from there. You see the questions that come up? It'd be difficult to figure this out. Now, what happens in these gray areas is two, there are two common extremes in Christianity. You ready? One is legalism. The other is license. The uh, first one, legalism, that's, that's the air that I grew up in, the legalistic Christianity. Uh, uh, that's what I'm most familiar with. That, it believes, legalism believes that every act, every habit, every type of behavior is either black or white. Legalists, they live by rules rather than by the spirit. They classify everything as either good or bad, whether the Bible mentions it or not. And when, when I was first in ministry, depending on what area of the country you went to, there was a different rule. Like, I remember uh, going to a place where going to the skating rink was bad. My area of legalism, skating rink was fine. I'm like, what? You guys don't go to skating? Why don't you go to skating rink? I got called, I, I got called, I, got, I had meetings with parents when I was a youth pastor, writer, ready? Meetings with parents when I was a youth pastor, you're, you're actually going to do this activity, I'm not going to name the activity, uh, because I might end up, you know, whatever, but uh, and it was a shock to me that that was even a problem with that activity, okay? Doing things on the good list and avoiding things on the bad list is their idea of spirituality, no matter what the inner person was like, and so when I grew up, there were those teenagers that I grew up with who all the adults, they knew they did the do and don't list, thought they were great teenagers, but I really knew them. And the adults learned who they actually were when they got out of high school, got on their own. 
Their Christianity had nothing to do with the heart. Refraining from doing things is not spirituality. Walking in the spirit is, is spirituality. Legalism stifles liberty, stifles conscience, stifles the word, and stifles the Holy Spirit. The opposite extreme, though, is where I think we are today for the most part in Christianity. Okay? And that is license. You could, you could even, uh, if you wanted to, toss the hypergrace movement into this. It, it, like legalism, has no gray areas, but it hardly has any black areas. Everything's white. Everything's okay. You know, the black and white, the do's and the don'ts. Almost, almost everything is acceptable as long as it's not strictly forbidden in Scripture. Such advocates believe that Christian freedom is virtually absolute and unqualified. And so what they do, and we're going to get into this, why this is a problem, they would say, as long as your conscience doesn't condemn you, it's okay. You can do what you please. And I would say that seems to be the philosophy that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. They probably agreed with him that believers should maintain a blameless conscience before God and men Beyond that, they didn't want any kind of restrictions. Now, here's the problem, and then we're going to read our passage. Don't get worried about my long introduction, okay? I promise the rest of the sermon isn't that long comparatively. The problem is that one person's freedom has the potential to cause another person to fall, stumble, or, as we will see in this passage, defile their conscience. So the question is, how then is a fellow believer to conduct himself to avoid causing another person to fall or to defile their conscience? And that's what we're going to look at today. So if you will, stand with me. We'll read 1 Corinthians chapter number 8 together. Verse number 1, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, by the way, let me go back. The Corinthians were saying all of us possess knowledge. Paul's response, this knowledge puffs up. Verse number two, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know, but anyone uh, loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, and here's again is a Corinthian statement, an idol has no real existence Another Corinthian statement, there is no God but one. These statements are absolutely true. Paul says, for although there are so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. That's another statement, another argument the Corinthians were making. We are no worse off if we eat and no better off if we do it, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, 
he will not be encouraged will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols and so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak you sin against Christ therefore if food makes my brother to stumble I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Lord, we thank you for this passage of scripture. We thank you for uh, the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. I pray that you will help us today to learn how to build one another up in love, and we will seriously consider, Lord, what our, um, how we refrain from things in our Christian liberty that may cause others to stumble. May you be honored and glorified in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much. Now, Paul is responding to three statements, I already said that, that the Corinthians made. They're they're absolutely true. And the first statement that they make is, all of us possess knowledge. That's what they said. As to this not what this knowledge is, we will see. Paul follows up by saying, yes, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up. Now, what Paul is saying, if I can summarize it in a statement, let me say what he's, he's saying here, this, knowledge without love results in pride. Knowledge without love results in pride. You see, Paul uses the word puffs up six times in in 1 Corinthians. He's, He's got a concern that arrogance Uh, is a problem in their lives. And many people gain knowledge of topics for self-centered concerns, don't they? Uh, Maybe I should say, don't we? That'd be a better way to say it. Um, But knowledge, even of God's word, is not enough. It is essential to gain knowledge of God's word, but it's not sufficient. What I mean by this is what Paul is saying. Knowledge by itself puffs up. To have love and no knowledge is unfortunate. But to have knowledge and no love is equally tragic. So a truly well-rounded Christian thinks and acts in in two different ways. He has knowledge plus love. Uh, Love is a medium through which truth is communicated. Uh, You've You've heard the phrase, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? Our children are the same way. Going back to those legalists that I mentioned earlier, there are a couple different examples of people that I went to church with that were extreme legalists, and one of the things that was missing was you never saw these parents, usually one of the two parents, show love towards the children, you know, it was all the stern disciplinarian type things and no love. And what you saw was the children rebelled against that. They never had truth communicated in any sort of loving form, right? And that is, that is hard for all of us to do, communicate truth with love. Now, Paul continues his discussion. Look at verse number two. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know as he ought to know. 
if you know truth, scripture truth, but do not have love, you are not as mature as you think you are. So Paul says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. What does he mean? What does he mean by that? That's kind of a weird phrase, isn't it? What he means is that loving God is the most important evidence of a right relationship to God. Without love for God made possible by his love for us, we have no right knowledge of him because we will not have right relation with him. And the only ones who know God and are known by God are those who have love relationship with him. So the Corinthians had knowledge without love, and the result was arrogance. But here's the question. Here's the second question. What was that knowledge that they knew? Well, that brings us to the second statement. In verse number four, they say, an idol has no real existence. In verse number six, they say, there is no God but one. So this is what they figured out. Look, all these idols here in Corinth, and there were probably hundreds, maybe even thousands, but hundreds at least, all these idols in Corinth, they're not real gods. There's only one. There's o- there's o- they're not real gods because there's only one God. So therefore, they can't be gods. If there's only one God, these, all these others can't be gods. They understood that. And so he agrees with them. In verse number five, he says, oh yeah, you're right. Even though there's so many so-called gods, whether the, whether, uh, the heavenly beings of the Greek gods, the, the pantheon of the Roman gods, the emperors, and so on and so forth, um, <coughs> we have come to know that truth. We understand that there's only one God. But in those doctrines, in that truth, the freedom-loving Corinthians they were completely orthodox. They had the right belief. The problem was how they applied this freedom in their daily living. They had the right concepts that they didn't carry them over to the right relationships. So verse number seven, what does Paul say? Look at what he says. However, not all possess this knowledge. Some, through former association with idols, eat food as it is offered to an idol, their conscience being weak as defiled. Let me explain that. Ready? So you have me offered to an idol. You have a new Christian or a weak Christian. You understand that idol's not real. And so you have this meat offered to idol. Joe Blow, new Christian, knows that. And you're like, oh, come on. It's not really been offered to an idol. Um, These idols aren't real. You can go ahead and eat it. Joe's conscience is screaming at him, you are disobeying because this is really a God. Because he's not mature enough yet to understand that. See? And what you've done is you've caused them to imagine that the the idols, though evil, were real and, and the idols they represented, the gods were real, the idols they represented were real, and they hadn't fully grasped that truth that there was only one real God. And even if they did understand it, that there was only one real God, the experience of their early paganism was so fresh in their minds that they rejected all that was related to it. And so to participate in any form or way, or I'm sorry, participate in any way, eating this meat made them feel like they were falling back into their pagan practices. 
and it caused them to defile the conscience. All right, so here's a question. What is conscience? What is conscience? And here's why I'm asking this. My conscience is different than your conscience. What is right and acceptable for me may be different for you, right? Okay? So what is conscience? Let's define conscience. Ready? Conscience is that inward faculty that we use to distinguish between right and wrong. Do you agree with that? That's what our conscience is. If that is true, then why, let's, I'll pick on somebody, why is my conscience different than John Green's? Why would it be different? The answer is that conscience can be trained. I'll, t- I'll tell you one way my conscience is trained. Funny story. When I was a little tyke, I was taught that shut up is a really bad word, okay? And I'm sure my parents didn't say it, but I, I put shut up in the category with all those words that you used to not be able to say on TV, okay, that everybody can say now, right? Uh, it was a really bad word. One day I was in third grade, and I was just a skinny little kid my whole growing up years, right? And the playground, I was on the basketball court, and the playground bully wanted you remember those red playground balls? I love those things. Uh, those are awesome. And I had one of those red playground balls, and uh, Herbie, that was his name, the playground bully, took mine, wouldn't give it back, and just ran off. I was, so, I was more angry than I could ever remember being as a little child, and he's running off the other direction. And I looked at him, I said, Herbie, shut up. Made no sense. But that was the worst word I could think of to say at that time, right? My conscience had been trained that shut up is a really bad. Now, kids, listen to me. Listen to me, kids. We don't say shut up, okay? We don't say it. I probably shouldn't have said that one either, should I? But before salvation... Your conscience is trained by your life experiences, by your parents, by your culture, and all these different things. After salvation, ideally, and this is important, ideally your conscience is trained by the Word of God in spiritual truth. And our conscience as believers is a mixture of all that extra biblical stuff that we were taught and biblical stuff, and it mixes together to make a unique recipe in everybody's life, right? Now, they should in general be the same, but sometimes they're not. And so, a defiled conscience was what Paul's talking about. See, it's a defiled conscience. Um, A defiled conscience is one that has been ignored and violated, and such a conscience brings confusion and resentment, and feelings of guilt. A person who violates his conscience willingly does what he thinks is wrong, and in his own mind, he has committed sin until he finally understands that the act is not sin in God's eyes, and he should have no part in it. Now, 
Let me say a couple more things, and I'm going to wrap this part of it up. Defiled conscience is a defiled faith. Now, why would I say that? Here's why. Everybody listen. Because conscience is what God uses in the life of a Christian to help them move towards righteousness. And as you read God's word, and as you listen to sermons, as you go to, to lessons and small groups and, and all of that sort of stuff, God is training your conscience con, uh, towards Christ-likeness, you see? And so you, you tread on thin ice when you begin to defile your conscience. Paul's primary point is that anyone who causes uh, such a weaker brother to defile his conscience and his faith leads that brother into sin. Now, knowledge may tell us this is perfectly acceptable, but love will tell us that because it's not acceptable to fellow believers' conscience, we should not take advantage of our freedom, right? I mean, my conscience would bother me if I rooted for the Pittsburgh Steelers. I'm just going to be honest with you. So therefore, since I'm a weaker believer in that area, I don't think anybody should. You still love me, Mike? All right, good, good. <laughs> All right, that brings us to a third point. A third truth that the Corinthians were talking about, and that's in verses 8 to 12, and that is this. Food is not an issue with God. If you look at verse number 8, he says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. And we understand that, right? But Paul said, watch out. Now, let me paraphrase 8 to 12 for you. Ready? He's basically saying, while you're congratulating yourself on how mature you are, as you chow down on that steak from the temple to Zeus, or that hot dog from the temple to Apollo, right? While you're congratulating yourself, or whatever of food they were enjoying in the temple dining rooms, while you're doing that with weaker believers, their consciences are screaming at them that they are failing, they are sinning, they are compromising with the world, and you don't seem to care. What a failure of love. These are your brothers and sisters. And so this is what he says. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Who is this weak person? The brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. You're not just sinning against them. You're sinning against Christ. You have undermined. You, you've, you've undermined one of God's central tools for our growth in grace. When you undermine somebody's conscience, you, under, uh, you undermine their ability to grow in grace. You've helped this weak Christian ignore their conscience, and that is never safe to do. You're imposing on them what their weak conscience condemns, and Christ gave up all for them. He gave all up. Won't you give up your rights for them? How much did Christ give up for you? Philippians 2, right? Equality with God was not a thing to be grasped. That glory that he rightly deserved, 
He gave up. Came down in the form of a servant, right? Are you better than Jesus in your demand to have your rights recognized? I'm American. Or American. I have rights. Right? That's what that's that's all of America right now. My rights, my freedom, we are inventing rights left and right, aren't we? You know, if I want to marry my dog, that's a right I can have. If I want to decide that my gender is not male or female, it's a third gender, whatever that happens to be, that's my right. Don't trample on my right. And we have to be very careful in the church that we distinguish between rights that were given to us through the Constitution and the liberties and how we're supposed to limit them as a Christian. Will you surrender your liberties for the good of those you're called to love? Because, listen, that's exactly what Christ did. That's what he did, didn't he? He loved us. Giving it all up, all of it, for us that we might be free. What, let me ask you this, what won't you give up? It's very possible something's popped in your head right now and you're pushing back against it maybe that's the holy spirit talking to you about something i I mean i don't know i don't know is there an idol that's got a steely grip on your heart what won't you give up for the love of your brothers now let me be honest our culture has changed tremendously since i was a young person i was thinking about application of these truths And to be quite honest with you, I really struggled with application. Listen why. I I was trying to identify what cultural norms that a person comes out of that we may or may not associate with. It's a gray area that could cause somebody else to stumble. What is that? That's a really hard question to answer. It was easy when I was young. I would actually, I would love to hear from you if you happen to know. If you happen to have ideas, seriously, I would love to hear it. Email or or talk with me or something like that. Because my growing up years, it was uh, some of the strongest debate among Christians centered around these gray areas, didn't it? Practices that many believers felt were wrong but were not uh, forbidden in scriptures that other believers said well it's not forbidden in scripture so it's okay what were those debates you remember them it was uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna name them in the first service i was watching the the teenager's face and they're like are you serious i could just see it on their face there was almost like scorn but if you're my age or older this is what you grew up with let's just throw some of this out you ready Smoking, card playing, billiards, um, wearing makeup, dancing, Sunday sports, that was an issue, wasn't it? Um, Styles of music, whether or not to go to the movie theater, alcoholic beverages, I mean, all these things. 
Is there even a debate about any of these things anymore? Because the culture has changed, what, what is it about our culture now that, that, is, um, that we need to think about? Let me give you an illustration. Now, this is not directly applicable to our passage today, but it kind of gets the point of, of it. Ready? Uh, I have a, a real close friend, and he's an elder in his church out west. It's in Oregon, in Portland. And uh, Heather and I were visiting with our, our friends some years ago. And we went to church with them, and that afternoon we were uh, eating with them and then hanging out at the house. And, and he said, you remember so-and-so? And he mentioned the couple. I said, yeah. He said, he said yeah, they're, they're new Christians. And he said, we, they came from a real rough background. He said, the, the husband came to me one time and said, look, said, I really can't come to your men's meetings anymore. They, they had men's meetings at people's houses. And it was a real casual thing. It wasn't like a formal thing. And he said, why? Why? And he said, because you guys serve alcohol at these men's meetings, and I know for a fact if I take one drink, I'm in the gutter. I said, so what would you decide about that? And he looked at me and said, well, I, I guess he's just not going to be coming. I went, I, I, I said, this is exactly what 1 Corinthians 8 is written for, and Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 10 you need to be willing to limit your freedom in that area so that dear brother in Christ, that young Christian, can come and, and seek fellowship with other Christian men, right? That's exactly loving your neighbor, what loving your neighbor looks like. Be willing to do away with that in order to minister to a weaker brother. And it's not exactly parallel. I realize that. But it is a similar parallel but what Paul does, and this is how I want to close, verse number 13, what does he do? This is hyperbole. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul's not literally saying, I'm not going to eat meat for the rest of my life, but he's saying, that's my heart. My heart is, look, if I'm in a situation where there's somebody who's, who would stumble, their conscience would stumble because I'm eating meat, Around that believer, I will never eat meat. Now, why would Paul say that? Let's go back to verse number two. He answers that. What does verse number two say? Love builds up. That's what we are to be doing with one another, building one another up. And we do that. Paul prays for churches that they build one another up in love, right? Love builds up. And so if I'm going to build up, I'm going to limit my freedom. Now, what are you willing to give up to build another believer up? Is there anything? Let, let me throw out one. Again, this is not even a, uh, a, a, a parallel, but it, it, it gets the point across what I'm saying. We have this little debate going on. You may have heard about it. It's about the wearing of masks in public. Now, what do you have at Providence Bible Church? You have the group on the one side that thinks this all is a conspiracy theory and the government's just trying to control everybody or whatever else it happens to be. All the way over to the other side who says, look, 
you're endangering everybody's life when you go out without a mask on. We have that range of opinions in our fellowship. Now, let's say that you're in a small group or even in some sort of meeting or whatever, and you've got one person who says, you know, I would love to come to this fellowship. I would love to do this Bible study. But the only way I, I feel that I could come is if everybody would wear a mask. What do you do? I'm American. I've got my freedom to not wear a mask. Is that the right way of thinking about it? Now, I realize it's not parallel, but I'm just throwing this out here. Are you willing to sacrifice what you think is true and right in an area where you have a freedom to do or to not to do? Are you willing to give up your freedom for that brother or sister? It's just a thought. I mean, I, I don't know what modern-day parallels are to what Paul's talking about that I can think of right now, but that's one that we can throw out there, isn't it? Because that's a debate that rages on. We've literally had times when people can't get together because, or people can't come because people won't wear masks. And frankly, I think that that's just a complete lack of love. And the argument is, by the way, uh, I'm an American, and I've got my freedom and liberty. I understand that. But that's not a biblical issue. The biblical issue is do you love your neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? So anyway, what will you do to love your neighbor, dear believer? Let us build one another up in love. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this passage. This was not easy. Um, to to figure out, but I, I know, Lord, that this is your word, and it's going to help us, and it's going to help us de- decide on our actions, and I pray that providence will be an assembly that builds one another up in love. I pray that we will be willing to limit our freedom in order to help somebody else out if if need be. And most of all, I pray that you'll be honored and glorified in the doing. In Christ's name we pray, amen.